In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters, and God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding the fruit and trees bearing fruit in which their seed each according to its kind on earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which their seed, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for, be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with its seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all of the host of them. 
And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Let's take a moment to reflect together on this first chapter of the Bible. At this point, we'll dismiss the kindergarten through second grade. You have your Bibles open there to Genesis chapter 1. And if you're looking at that and thinking about the text, I have to admit that I'm more anxious about preaching on this text than any other text I've previously preached on. And I think that's because there's such a, a, a wide wide opinion here and also such strong controversy. So there's a, there's a number of different opinions when you come to this text. And most of the time, the, the opinions are also very strong. So it's not like, well, I don't know. A lot of people come to the text and feel like this, this is it. And if you don't have it, then you've missed the entire thing. So I'm a little nervous about this. And also there's so much content in here. And I'm trying not to make a, uh, you know, a 12 week sermon series on Genesis chapter one, which we could. And so you're going to have to sit just a few minutes longer than normal. I'm just informing you right now. And so if somewhere during the sermon you need a two minute break, I understand. Uh, but there's so many things here and, and you know, there's, a, there's 10 times as much that's been missed that what I've put in here. But as we sort of look through here, I want to pick out the things that I think are are of some primary importance. Uh, if you're on the emailing list, you've got a couple of different uh, pieces of information that will be helpful, especially as you think about these first two chapters. And one was a link to an article or a booklet called Christian Interpretations of Genesis 1. And so this uh, biblical scholar named Vern Poitras, he had these Ten different interpretations of Genesis 1. And he doesn't even list them all. Uh, are we living on a young earth which was created in six literal days? Six 24-hour periods. Certainly that's the most straightforward reading when you look at this chapter. And the supporters of the young earth position have very strong biblical case for that particular position. And if you don't take their position for some of them, uh, they sort of make you feel like, well, then you're sort of giving up the whole Bible. If you don't have that position, then how can you have a position on other pieces of the Bible? And they consider it a pretty significant error if you reach an alternative conclusion. But all of these positions, including their own, they have problems. And none of them are free of problems, which is why there's so much controversy the word day can mean 24 hours, or the word day can refer to a longer period of time. Another issue is that the sun wasn't created until the fourth day. And so we think of 24 hours, and the reason we think of 24 hours is because that's how the earth rotates around the sun. But if the sun wasn't created until the fourth day, then how did you have that for three days prior to that? 
And there's some questions on that. And if you read a particular book about different views, the, the people who hold to the young earth position say there was, there was an outside or unknown uh, light source for the first three days, which certainly could be true, just not in the text. So they realize they have a problem. They're trying to figure this out. Well, maybe there's an, some other uh, uh, source of the sun that's not really the sun until it cre- gets created on the fourth day. There's also potential problems when you read Genesis chapter 1 and then Genesis, the events of Genesis chapter 2. There seems to be some conflict, and they've worked it out, so it could possibly work, but it's a lot of difficulties. There's a lot of shaky uh, pieces in that p- particular position. Nonetheless, they have a good biblical position, but it's not surprising with all the controversy and certainly with our science and technology. There's all kinds of different views of how the earth might have been created and there's several really strong biblical views, I believe, that you can take that are not the young earth, six 24-hour literal days position. Scholar and scientist Hugh Ross argues persuasively for the day age. So each day here is not a 24-hour day, it's an age. It's a, a sort of a period of time, a very long period of time. And, and each day represents that period of time. John Piper and others hold to sort of what I would say is a modified gap theory. So there's a gap between the Genesis 1, 1 and Genesis 1, 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so that's all of creation, according to Sailhammer, who's a theologian and who John Piper follows after. And then in Genesis 2, uh, he's talking about the creation of the garden specifically. So there's a could be a big gap. God created everything, could have taken a long period of time. And then when you get to Genesis 2, we're talking about just particularly uh, creating the garden itself where man and woman were first uh, put. Tim Keller takes another view, and he insists Genesis chapter 1 is poetry. It's not narrative. So when you come to this particular test, text, it's at least unique. I think every scholar would say that it's unique. And Keller would conclude that the uniqueness is Hebrew poetry. It's supposed to be literary rather than literal. And I'll give you some examples. In the Hebrew, uh, this chapter contains seven paragraphs. Now, seven is the number uh, for the Bible of completeness or perfection. And so that, that every time you had a seven or a multiple of seven, it was just a way of saying it was good, it was great, it was perfect, it was complete. And so uh, this chapter, if you read it in the Hebrew, it has seven paragraphs. As this to tell the readers, when you get to the end, it's all going to be perfect. It's all going to be complete. There are some significant words in the text called, like God, earth, heaven, and they appear frequently, and they all appear as a multiple of seven. There are seven references to light in the fourth paragraph. There are seven references to water in the third and the fourth paragraph. In the first sentence in the Hebrew, it's seven words. In the last sentence, and the last is the seventh paragraph, it contains three sentences that end the, the text and they all have seven words. So when you read all this and you read it in the Hebrew, which we're not reading, you realize that there's something unique about this particular text. And whether it's poetry or, or whether it's not, I think you can say it's at least a unique kind of writing. 
Another very popular view, Meredith Klein, well-respected Old Testament scholar, adheres to what's called the framework view. So you see here in Genesis chapter 2 or verse 2, there's, there's a formlessness and a void. And so there's this formless and void in the earth, and God comes in and he creates. And the way he creates is he takes what's formless and forms it. And he does that in the first three days of creations. He, he separates light and darkness. He creates sky and waters, day two. He creates land and seas. So he takes what was formless and creates a form in the first three days. And then in the second three days, he fills up the form. He, he takes, he separates the light and darkness in, in, in day one and day four. He creates the moon and the stars and the sun. He creates the sky and the water in the second day. And in the fifth day, he puts fish and birds in the sky and the water. On the third day, he creates the land and the sea. He, he creates that. He forms it. And on the sixth day, he fills that up with animals and mankind. And those are just a few of the alternatives. And I know you're like, oh my gosh, I hope he doesn't keep going. But there, there, when you read it, yeah, I think there are several positions you could take and you could still say, I'm faithful to saying I trust the Bible, I believe in its inerrancy. For what it's worth, and this part of the sermon isn't worth really very much at all, uh, I don't know the age of the earth. And I don't think the Bible speaks directly to the age of the earth. And personally, I lean towards a more literary reading of Genesis 1 rather than a literal one. So I don't have a problem if the earth turns out to be 4.5 billion years old, which is what scientists would say today. Now, here I feel like a politician because if God created it in seven days, literally, and it's a young earth, I don't have a problem with that. Because I've already believe, I already trust that God came in the flesh to visit the planet in the person of Jesus Christ. That he died on the cross for my sins. That he actually rose from the grave. That he's going to come back and he's going to take me to heaven. So if I believe all that, it is no problem for me to trust that God made the earth 10,000 years ago in seven 24-hour periods or six 24-hour periods. But you have to come to some kind of conclusion of what this literature is in chapter 1. And is it literal so how would you line up with the questions and problems with that? Is it literary? And then what kind of questions and problems does that create? And so I find myself more on the literary side. But, but the main problem I see with Genesis chapter 1 is not really with the wording of the text. Is, uh, the main problem I see in Genesis chapter 1 is our reading of the text. To me, it makes a big difference of how you read the text, because in our scientific age, we start by reading Genesis chapter one by asking the question, how? How did God create the earth? I mean, we're, we all come from a, from a sort of an enlightened viewpoint, this scientific viewpoint. And when we read Genesis one, all of our questions, uh, start with the word, how? How did he create the heavens and the earth? And all the theories then address the question, how? Uh, a few summers ago, I spent uh, a few days at Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis, and I got a chance to talk to a couple of Old Testament professors, and I talked to them separately, and one of the Old Testament professors held to a young earth creation, Genesis 1, and the other one held to an old earth creation, Genesis 1. 
But as I talked to them separately, they both said the exact same statement. And it was this. That's my position, Mr. Phillips. But that's not the point of the text. The point of the text is not asking how. The point of the text is asking who. And we come asking how, and the writer and the audience are asking who. And so we come asking the wrong question. Who is the text addressing? Who is the text talking about? And these are the questions I want to use to frame the rest of the sermon. Who is the text addressing? Who's the primary target audience? And then who is the text talking about? Those are, that's the better questions to ask rather than how. So who is this text addressing? Who's the, the first primary audience? I thought that was such an important topic. I spent a whole sermon last week talking about that. So if you missed it, you can go online and read it and listen to it. But let me just review because I think it's very important that when you talk about having heard a text, heard a sermon, it makes a very big difference, the context of it. Who's in the audience at this very first sermon that Moses gives in Genesis chapter 1? And we know that the primary audience for Genesis 1 are the Israelites. These people who are now on the far side of the Red Sea, they've just been saved from 400 years of slavery. They've gotten to the other side, and now Moses is trying to say, you need to know something about who, who God is, who you are, what's his plan. And so he's sitting there, and they've come out of this culture in Egypt that they have a pantheon of gods. 400 years they've been learning that Pharaoh is a god. They've learned they've been learning that the sun in our solar system it's a god. The sky is a god. The animals it's a god. The river it's a god. They have a god for everything. And they've spent 400 years hearing that, probably some of them carving images uh, made in these kinds of forms. And then Moses comes across and he says, okay, now let me help you understand Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in this one opening statement, Moses deconstructs 400 years of their understanding. You mean there's a God who created all these things? Yeah, there is one God. And everything that you've been forming, everything you've been hearing, it's totally bunk. Because it's all things that have been created by this one God who is the one creator. There actually are no other gods. There's just one God, and he's created everything. He's even created you. And so when Moses starts this thing, this conversation, this sermon, everybody in the audience is overwhelmed with this information. Now, we don't feel that because it's such a for, it's such a easy uh, text for us to know. But if you're standing on the far side of the sea and you have 400 years of history, when you hear, in the beginning, God created everything, you're like, who is this God? What does he want? Where is he taking me? Why is it that this God can defeat all the, the Pharaoh's gods so easily? Because he made all these things. It's no problem for him. So Genesis 1 and and Genesis 2, when we come here, we have to understand who's the primary audience. And it's not a group of scientists. 
It's not a group of saying, okay, now let's, uh, what, you know, what exactly happened? And that's not who's listening to this first sermon. It's not really meant to be a scientific textbook. It's, it's primarily answering these questions from the audience. Who, who is God? Who is this God has rescued me? And if you don't approach the text in that way, I think you can, you can really ask questions of the text that the text doesn't intend to, to answer. So who is the text addressing these slaves that have just come out of Egypt? Who is the text about, number two? It's primarily about God. He's the main character in the book. He's mentioned 35 times in the opening chapter. In case you just couldn't figure it out, you go read, read it and go, I guess this is the main thing. This person wants us to know about this God. And secondarily, it's about creation and and mankind. So I want to move through these things fairly quickly because I think they're all important. Uh, number one, one, one thing that we learn about God is he's self-existent. God is self-existent. When Moses writes in the beginning, he's not talking about the beginning of God. He's talking about the beginning of creation, the beginning of time. God was before all these things. Theologians like to use fancy words. Maybe they were trying to impress their friends. But I want to give you one and you can impress your friends. This is called the aseity of God. A-S-E-I-T-Y. So you go to church and the water, I mean, you go to business and you're at the water cooler tomorrow. Yeah, talked about the aseity of God yesterday. And they go, wow. And that's this self-existence of God. He doesn't come from anything. Everything comes from him. He's the creator. Everything else is the created. Jesus says in John 5, 26, the father has life in himself. Everything else is given life. God has life in himself. Genesis 2, 7, God breathes life into his creation. John 10, 10, Jesus comes and he says, I have come that they might have what? Life. See, this, these, these people who've sinned and they're really dead, I've come to bring life back into them. I'm coming to breathe life back. So God is the only being who's self-existent. If you're over 40, you may remember this guy named Carl Sagan. Anybody remember this name, Carl Sagan? He had such a cool voice. That's what I liked about Carl Sagan more than anything else. And it was sort of this compelling voice that you're like, yeah, this guy's super smart. He's got a cool voice. So I'm listening. And he wrote this book called The Cosmos. So it was basically his understanding of creation and, and the cosmos itself. And he has this uh, saying that he's probably most well known for, the cosmos. And I wish I could have his sort of smoky voice, but the cosmos. It's all that is or ever was or ever will be. And if you're just not careful, you're like, man, you're right. And then you shake your head and you realize, no, no, that's the very opposite of what the Bible's saying. The cosmos isn't eternal. Only God is eternal. And God is all that ever was, all that ever is, all that ever will be. And he created all things. And so the Bible clearly contradicts Professor Sagan. Uh, Genesis 1 interpretation. He thinks that matter is eternal. And Moses comes in and says, no, matter's not eternal. There's only one eternal being, and that's God. Secondly, God is the creator. In the beginning, God created. 
the very first ver- this very first sentence dismisses all the mythologies of the of the ancient world as i've said it's important because when you read genesis 1 we don't we don't want to take genesis 1 like a gun and aim it at naturalism or evolution which is what we would do. We take it and say, what's the big problem today for us? Well, let's just aim it at evolution or aim it at naturalism. I'm not saying it doesn't have anything to say about that, but that's not what the primary audience is even thinking about. They're thinking about all these gods that we've grown up with in Egypt, and Moses takes chapter 1, and he's aiming at that particular uh, lie, that particular mythology that there are all these other gods, the sun, the river, the sky, the animals. Moses is preaching to an audience that's come out of polytheism, and so they're inundated with this idea. So in Moses' first lesson, he's informing the Israelites that all those things are created, and none of those things are God. One scholar suggests that you notice even on the fourth day when God creates the, the greater lights and the lesser lights, and what do we know those as? The sun and the moon. And one scholar suggests Moses doesn't even use the word sun and moon because he doesn't want to give them any prominence. So he just says the greater light and the lesser light. They're not really very important at all. What's really important is the person who created those things, not themselves. So he just skips trying to use the name. Perhaps that's why he did it. The word created in Hebrew, bara, B-A-R-A, means created after nothing, created out of nothing. It's also a word in the Old Testament that is only associated with God. It's never associated with anyone else. So God created. God created something out of nothing. He's the only person that has the power to do that. And so this first chapter, what we need to know is taking aim at the mythology that the people in the first audience understood. That there were other gods, and Moses comes in and says there is only one God. It's also taking aim at our modern mythology, and that is that there is no God. See, the ancient mythology is that there were thousands of gods or hundreds of gods. And so Moses is primarily taking aim at that, but I say also here he's... He's, it's happened that he's taking aim at our what I'm calling our modern mythology. And our modern mythology is that there is no God. And if you're in scientific circle, circles, creation happened by abiogenesis. That's the term they use. In other words, something came from nothing. At some point, as far back as you go, there was nothing And then all this stuff that we see came out of nothing. And I have to say, I don't find this idea persuasive. Especially if you learn about the specificity of how the earth needs to be in a certain orbit and the degrees it's tilted and all these things. You think, how is it possibly that it's so fine-tuned for life and yet it just happened. And then when you learn how, how specific and complex the human anatomy is, you think, how, how is it that, that nothing was there and then something was there and it's something that has such a great design and has some incredible complexity and yet nothing's behind it. I just don't find that compelling. During the election of 2004, I think it was, 
uh, Tom Brokaw, maybe it was 2008, Tom Brokaw interviewed a man named Tim Pawlenty. If you might know his name, he was running for president. I think he was from Minnesota, if I'm not mistaken. And the, the, the race had sort of gone on for a while, and then John McCain had picked Sarah Palin as his running mate. And so there was a lot of discussion, especially on the talk shows about this choice, of Sarah Palin and some of the views that she held. And Tom Brokaw on his show, Meet the Press, he's having this sort of Q&A with Tim Pawlenty. And he's uh, asking him basically about uh, some of Sarah Palin's ideas about creation and design and creation rather than just evolution. Let me just read you a, a brief back and forth. Brokaw, Palin thought the two subjects, evolution, creation by design, should be taught by side by side in public schools. So Sarah Palin had said, I, th- I think there's, ve- there's something to be learned. They're both theories. They should be taught side by side. And Tom Brokaw was kind of cornering Tim Pawlenty. He said, hey, do you think that? Brokaw continues, in the vast scientific community. So he's sort of giving away his hand. In the vast scientific community, do you think that creationism has the same weight as evolution? Mr. Pawlenty, at a time in American education when we are in a crisis when it comes to science, that there ought to be parallel tracks for creationism versus evolution in the teaching, do you think that's a good idea? You hear his bias. Governor Pawlenty, like a great politician, my personal view is it's it's a local decision. (laughs) So uh, awesome. I wish I could be this smart on these things. Uh, and then immediately Brokaw breaks in. But, but given equal weight, it's a local school board decision. And you would recommend it with equal weight. Now, I can't say what Mr. Brokaw's views are. Maybe he has some other view, but it seems like he's biased towards an evolutionary view. Uh, given the vast scientific community that's behind him and the crisis in education, which does not have anything to do with this. Why should we give equal weight to to this? And I wonder if Pawlenty had said something like this, not even quoting the Bible, because that wouldn't have gotten him anywhere, but just quoted the Declaration of Independence to Tom. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator. And if he would have just said, Tom, you know, I, I think we can survive as a country if we think that it's if, if it's I think we, we can survive as a country if we teach our children that there is a creator. And, you know, Tom, if there's no creator, then it's not self-evident that men are created equal. It's not self-evident that men have certain rights. See, if you take the creator out of the equation, then men can do whatever they want. They don't have any governing person. And you wonder what Tom might have said. Anyway, God is the creator. Third, God is self God is sovereign. God is self-existent. God is the creator. God is sovereign. And so much could be said here. I'm just going to make one statement. The author has authority. Whoever the author is, he has the authority over the story. 
He has the authority over the characters in this story. However the story comes about, whatever is the middle part of the story, whatever the end of the story, he's the author. He gets to decide. And I actually think this is the most difficult thing for us to swallow in our culture about who God is in Genesis chapter 1. I don't think it's as difficult. I think that's more difficult to swallow than how God created the earth. Because we like to be self-sovereign. I like to be king. And I like God around. I just like God around doing the things that I want him to do. He's like my little errand boy. I pray he gets things done that I can't do. And so God is the author and we are created. And he has the right to ultimately judge everything that we do, everything that we say. And one day, all of his creation is going to come and give an account for all of what they said and what they did and what they thought. And however God wants to work out the end of the world, he's the author, not me. Let me mention one thing about creation. Again, I could have a whole sermon series of this. I'm just going to mention one thing. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. When you see creation, there's a beauty, there's a symmetry about creation, about us, about any a cell. And what God does is he takes something that was formless and void and, and he makes it into something that's beautiful. And on the seventh day, it's so beautiful, he stands back and says, I'm not going to do any more work. I'm just going to admire what I've done. I'm just going to stand there and go, this is incredible. God may be impressed himself, if that's possible. He took a whole day just to stand back. And you know this, especially if you're an artist, you've, you've create, you've composed some piece of music, you've created something out of your hands, and after you've put all the work into it, you want to just stand back and say, wow, that's incredible, that's amazing. That's what God does on the seventh day. And He says, it's very good. The consequences of man's rebellion against God in Genesis chapter three, the, the result of what we call sin, the result is decreation. What God made beautiful gets decreated. Now you see this most easily in Genesis chapter 6 and chapter 7 with the flood. So there was a formlessness and void. God made something beautiful. Very quickly it gets decreated. And then in Genesis chapter 6 and chapter 7 there's a flood. And basically we go back to the beginning but I want to listen. I want you to listen just to one other place. Jeremiah chapter four. This is Jeremiah talking to the people of God and the people of God have walked away from God. And just listen to the description. Jeremiah four twenty two. My people are fools. They do not know me. I looked at the earth and it was formless and void. I looked at the heavens and their light was gone. I looked and there were no people. Every bird in the sky had flown away. And the Lord said, the whole land will be ruined. Therefore, the earth will mourn and the heavens will grow dark. See, if you don't have God in your life, you're formless and void. You have no form. You have no substance. You have this huge hole in your soul. And you, you know it, and so you try to create some form, some substitute form, and some substitute material to fill up this void. And typically what happens is, because you have no form, you create this religion. 
And whatever the religion is, whether it's inside the church or some other religion, it's a religion where if you do stuff, you get to go to, to, to heaven. You, you create a religion that has a structure that tells you if you do these eight things, if you do these four things, if you pray this particular way, you sort of obligate God. I need some form, and so I create some form for my, my soul. It's called religion. How you get to God. And then everyone here knows you have a void in your soul. And if God isn't filling that void... You just take what's take what's created, materialism, and you try to stuff it into that hole, saying, if I have enough money, if I have this person, if I have this house, if I have this job, if I have this degree, and you stuff it in there, and it lasts for a week or a day or a year, but it doesn't last a lifetime. See, without God, we're all formless and void. And then we race around trying to find some form, trying to fill up this void, and God's saying, no, I'm that person. One thing we learn about mankind, verse 26 and 27. What we learn about God, one thing we've learned about creation, one thing that we want to know about mankind. And, of course, we'll talk about mankind as we go forward in Genesis chapter 2. We're all familiar with this phrase, are we not created in God's image? Very familiar phrase to us. You don't have to be in church to know it. But do you know when Moses said it, it wasn't the first time the Israelites had heard it. They weren't going, wow, I never heard that phrase. They're going, oh, we've heard this phrase all the time. It's just that they had only heard the phrase attached to one person. There is one person in the minds of the Israelites who is created in God's image, and that one person is the Pharaoh. So when Moses says it, they go, oh, we know who he's talking about. He's talking about Pharaoh. He's been telling us that for 400 years, that he's the one person on the planet who is created in the image of God. And because the Pharaoh is created in the image of the God, then the Pharaoh has all the power to rule and reign and have dominion. And, and I, I can't stress to you how stunning it would have been for a Hebrew slave for 400 years, for Moses to get to verse 26 and 27 and say, So God created all mankind, male and female. God created you, you slaves, in his image. 400 years of you're nobody, you're nothing, you're a slave. There's only one person created in God's image. They have this totally flowing through their minds. And Moses comes in, can completely de- de- deconstructs it, Bain, saying, no, every person on the planet, whether it's Pharaoh or whether it's you, you're all created in God's image. You're all supposed to exercise dominion. You're all supposed to have some rule and reign, not just Pharaoh. I'm sure they didn't even have the capacity to understand. Every person on the planet is made in God's image. Every person has a role. Every person has an assignment in God's economy that's incredibly important. It's why inside the church there, there can't be any distinction by race or wealth or education or position or title or gender. See, this has massive implications of how you look at each other. Because there's no difference between me and the person sitting in the back row. 
There's no difference between me and you and the Pope is going to visit. There's no difference between you and any the president or anybody else that you think is important. We have different roles. We have a different assignment. But everybody here, when God looks at you, he says, you're very good. You're made for a particular purpose. Your purpose matters for all eternity. I want you to help me rule and reign this whole earth in some particular area. And maybe your area is a little bit smaller than another area, but every area is critically important. The Hebrew people could have not even absorbed this in the first reading. You mean we are made in God's image? Yeah, that's right. That's the truth. Let me just finish by making a connection to Jesus. Genesis 1 tells us wonderful things about God. It tells us wonderful things about creation. It tells us this and more wonderful things about mankind. But we aren't in Genesis 1, are we? I mean, we know something's gone wrong. It's not, that's awesome, Paul, but that's not the way it works now. Something's gone wrong. And the question that we have is, is there any way to get back to that? Is there any way back to the garden? And Genesis 1, I think, points to, begins to point to the answer. Where, what other place in the Bible starts with in the beginning? There's one other book of the Bible that has the very, very same phrase. John chapter 1. The Gospel of John tells us that the word of God, the word that created all things, that word became flesh. And that person's name is Jesus. He, the, the, the person who created all matter became matter, stunningly. Jesus came to earth. He, he ended up on a cross. Uh, and you might say he experienced on the cross decreation. One of the gospel writers that says that darkness came over the face of the earth as Jesus hung on the cross. He emptied himself. He became formless and void. Why? Jesus, the creator, had to be decreated so I could be recreated. He had to experience the formlessness and void of my sin in order for me to be formed and filled. The creator became decreated so that you and I could become recreated. And so that now, when God looks at us, if you know Jesus Christ, he says, you're very good. He looks at you now and he says, you're great. You're perfect. You're formed just like I want you to be. If you know the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, this is a very complex chapter. And some of the questions that arise from us, our worldview, and this text are not going to be clearly understood until we see you face to face. But we know you are the creator. You're the only true God. There are no other gods. There's also not no God. 
There is a God. He created all things. He wants to be known. So badly he came here and experienced decreation so that we could be recreated. So I pray for my friends here. They think about the the immensity of the universe and the smallness of themselves. They would know that you're still looking on your creation and saying, very good, very good. But we must trust and trust our lives to the Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, strengthen those who are hurting. Help those who have questions. Bring people out of darkness into light, I pray with your word. In Jesus' name, amen.